Hebrews 8, I want to begin at verse 1. There's only 13 verses in this chapter. It's not a very long chapter. And here we are introduced to this idea of covenant and a better covenant. And I want you just to follow along as I read. It says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the, sha- the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished by God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should, no, there should no, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, when I took them by the hand to lead them, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their heart. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least unto the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now there's chapter 8. There's only 13 verses there, uh, but there's, there's a transition we see in this chapter. Back in chapter 7, we were introduced or we were shown the deficiencies of the Levitical priesthood. There were some deficiencies. Well, first of all, we see the mortality of the priests. There were many priests. They were not suffered to continue by reason of death. And so there were many high priests in the Old Testament. But not only that we see the need for repeated sacrifices over and over. Many sacrifices were offered. And why? Because they could not take away sins. In chapter 8, we see the imperfect correspondence between the earthly and the shadow, this tabernacle which was built on earth. It was a shadow and it was a copy of the real thing, of the true tabernacle which God pitched, which is in heaven. 
And so that which the Israelites saw, that which the physical tabernacle, which they could feel, touch, they could see it, that was not the reality. They tended to think of it as the reality, but it wasn't. It was a copy. Then in chapter 8, we are also seeing the obsolescence of the Levitical priesthood, this old covenant. That which waxeth old, decayeth, is ready to vanish away. There is a new covenant. Now, we see in this chapter, there's, there's two themes going on. We'll see it carry on into chapter 9, but there's a theme of the sanctuary and a covenant. There's a sanctuary and a covenant. There's an earthly sanctuary. There's a heavenly sanctuary. There's an old covenant. There's a new covenant. And Jesus, our high priest, there in verse 1, where is he? He is seen seated on a throne. Last week we looked at these some passages about that. But Jesus is seated on a throne. But in verse 6 of chapter 8, we not only see that he is seated on a throne, we now look at his more excellent, what? His ministry. He is ministering. So it's not just a position. He's seated on a throne, but he also has a more excellent ministry. He is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. In the Old Testament, in Zechariah, which is right toward the end of the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13, it says, Speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now, there's one of the names of the Lord that is uh, not very often uh, observed. It's just recorded here once. Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So here is a word of prophecy dealing with the Lord as a priest on his throne. He's on a throne, but he is also ministering in the sanctuary. Now, as we just read in chapter 8, we see here that the earthly tabernacle and the whole Levitical system was simply a copy of the heavenly. And that demonstrates that the old covenant, that whole old covenant, is consigned or was consigned to that which was earthly, that which was temporal, and which would eventually become obsolete, would eventually pass away. Now, I want us to note in verse 7, no, actually in verse 6, where it says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. I want to talk to you today about that word covenant. What is he talking about when he's talking about a better covenant? What is a covenant? When we think about covenants, we don't use that word too often anymore. We'll talk about agreements or contracts. But what is a covenant? In particular, the covenant we're, covenants we're dealing with are covenants that pertain to the relationship of God and His people. The relationship of God to His people. 
In the Old Covenant, there were stipulations, and there are better promises in the New Covenant. We read about this, so we need to discover what those are, what those were. What is a covenant? Well, I want you to think of it this way. A covenant has three basic parts. First of all, it is a formal agreement between two parties. It's a formal agreement. It's a formal agreement that concerns specific obligations. When there's a, a covenant, there are obligations between the two parties that are owed to each other. And then thirdly, a covenant is this formal agreement which concerns mutual obligations, and it is bound by a solemn pledge by both parties to fulfill their obligations. Now, when we think of a covenant, a lot of times when I think of a covenant, the first thing that comes to my mind is a marriage ceremony. Think of a marriage ceremony and and, you know, what's the most important part or the key central part of the marriage ceremony? Is it when the, is it when the, the official says, all right, you may kiss the bride? Kids, is that the most important part? Oh, yeah, that's the part we're looking for. No, that's not the most important part. The most important part of the ceremony is when each individual, the, the bride-to-be, the groom, when they both make their vows and their solemn commitment to one another. The pastor will usually use his name and say, do you take her to be your lawfully wedded wife? And he will say, I do. And then he'll repeat this vow and he'll do the same for her. Do you take him? And there is a covenant made. There is a promise and there are obligations in that solemn ceremony. So a covenant, it's a formal agreement concerning obligations between two parties, which is sealed by a solemn pledge by both parties to fulfill those obligations. Now, there's an old covenant and there is a new covenant, and both are mentioned in this passage. We note that verse 6 Verse 6 is this transition which moves us to be looking at Jesus' more excellent ministry based upon better promises. Here in verse 8, or actually let's look down at verse 10 of chapter 8. This This quotation here is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, and he says, "...for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." Here's where he starts, and he's talking about this new covenant. And then the climax to that is found in chapter 10. In chapter 10, beginning at verse 14, here we read about Jesus' ministry there in the true tabernacle in heaven. He goes through it in detail through chapter 9 and chapter 10 up to verse 14. And here's the climax of his ministry. It says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. After that he had said before, and then look what he says in verse 16. He ends with this covenant. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put 
my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And then verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That really, there is the climax of Jesus' high priestly work. It begins back in 8, verse 10, this new covenant. Now, a covenant. What is a covenant? We've gone over that. But we need, we've talked about this, we need a high priest. No man can approach unto God without a priest. We've talked about this at length. And I've asked you this question, who is your high priest? Jesus Christ is our high priest. But not only do we need a priest, we need a covenant. We need a covenant. You think about our eternal security. On what is our eternal security based? Really, it is based upon the Word of God. It is a based, it's based upon His covenant with us. We must have a covenant from God. We'll close our service today later on, not right now, but um, the hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The hymn by Edward Moat. Thank you, Mount. And the third stanza goes like this. It says, His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. This covenant, our eternal security is based upon God's solemn covenant. In verse 7 of chapter 8, he says, For if the first covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Why was there a need for a new covenant? There was already a covenant made. What was wrong with it? Why does he speak of a new covenant? Why did Jeremiah, clear back in the Old Testament, give this prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31 that God was going to make a new covenant with his people? Verse 8 says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So there was a covenant already made, but God is stating that He's going to make a new covenant. And therefore, we can obviously understand and we can see that there was something inadequate about that first covenant. There was a new covenant that was necessary. The old was inadequate. What could it not do? What was wrong with the Old Covenant? We know that the Bible tells us that God's law that He gave to Moses was perfect. There was nothing wrong with it. Romans chapter 7, the law was perfect, holy, it was just, it was good. There was nothing wrong with the law. But here He says, For finding fault with them, He saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Where was the problem? Well, 
The problem was with the people. Remember, a covenant is a solemn commitment between two parties to fulfill their obligations. And there the children of Israel did not fulfill their obligation. In verse 9 it says, When I took them out of the land of Egypt, he says, They continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, said the Lord. Or another translation says, And I did not care for them. They broke the covenant. Now, before we look at the new covenant, we won't have time to look at the new covenant today, but I want us to talk about covenants. What are the biblical covenants? There are several in Scripture. And when we talk about covenants, what are we talking about? We're talking about the ways in which God has dealt with man throughout history. When we talk about this in theological terms, there are two main ways of viewing God's dealing with people in history. There's covenant theology, and there's dispensational theology. Two different theological systems. We're not going to go into those today. That's not the point. But both of these theological systems recognize biblical covenants. When, we, when, when a lot of times people get the idea when you talk about covenants, oh, you must be a person who believes in covenant theology. Not necessarily. Whether you're a dispensationalist or a covenant theologian, you agree on this point. There are many covenants in Scripture, and they're very important for understanding what God is doing in His dealings with man throughout history. So don't confuse the biblical covenants with covenant theology. There's a big difference. Now, we're going to look at the biblical covenants today briefly, and I want you to note the three parts of each of these covenants. First of all, who who is participating? Who are the participants in the covenant? Who are the parties involved? Secondly, what are the commitments? What are the obligations? A covenant, remember, is a solemn commitment between two parties to fulfill their obligations. So what are the obligations? And then thirdly, who is pledging faithfulness? Who is making the solemn commitment to fulfill the obligations? So who are the, who are the participants? What are the obligations? And who is pledging to be faithful? The first covenant I want you to note is in Genesis chapter 9. Turn over to Genesis chapter 9. We just read about this one in our family devotions. In Genesis chapter 9, we have the story of Noah and the flood. And at the end of the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, God speaks to Noah. And beginning at verse 8, it says, And God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I will establish, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, 
and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And then he goes on and keeps talking about it. And then in verse, in verse 17, And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Now, this is known as the Noahic covenant. Okay? I want you to note, who are the participants in this covenant? Well, obviously, God is one, and who else? Well, it's Noah, but it's not just Noah. It's his seed after him, but it's just not mankind. It's with all the animals and all of God's creation. There's a covenant that God made with all his living creatures. So here are the participants. Well, what are the obligations? What is God committing to do? It says that he is committing to never again destroy the earth with a flood. He's never going to do it again that way. What are the obligations on Noah's part or on the animal's part? Are there any obligations? None. There are no obligations. This kind of a covenant is known as an unconditional covenant. It's unconditional. Who is pledging faithfulness? God is pledging faithfulness. He says, I am going to do, or in this case, I will not do this again, ever again. It's not based on the behavior of Noah. In fact, Noah has nothing to do with it. God is just saying, I am going to do this. Here is my solemn commitment, and here's the rainbow. And that is to be a reminder. God said, and it wasn't a reminder to Noah, it was a reminder to God. He says, when I see the bow in the clouds... I will remember my covenant with you, with all living creatures. So here is an unconditional covenant. Let's look at the next covenant that we see in Scripture. And we'll turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. This isn't the first time that God mentions this, but this is a good passage to look at as far as the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, And when Abraham was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Goes down in verse 5, Well, in, he says in verse 4, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, Thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. A father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant 
between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And then he goes on in verse 10. He says, This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Now, here's this covenant. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. Who are the participants? Well, God. God is making this covenant, and he's making it with whom? With Abraham. And not only with Abraham, but with Abraham's descendants. And what does God promise to do? In this covenant, God promises to make, or to, to make Abraham great. It's his promise to Abraham concerning his seed, the land, the blessings that he's going to give him. And God required Abraham to be circumcised. He says, all your seed after you will be circumcised. Now, this is interesting because most theologians look at this covenant and they say, well, is this an unconditional covenant or is it a conditional covenant? What do you think? Do you think it's conditional or is it unconditional? And God does say, I want, it to, I want you to circumcise your males. But in reality, this is an unconditional covenant. It's an unconditional covenant. And we know this because it is concerning Christ's coming through the seed of Abraham. And that was not conditioned upon his seed all being circumcised or upon their behavior. This is considered an unconditional covenant. God is pledging his faithfulness. This covenant was made with Abraham, but ultimately this covenant was made with Abraham's seed, and that seed being whom? Christ. And so here is the Abrahamic covenant. Now let's turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19. In Exodus chapter 19, it's the third month. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt. They're with Moses, and they're at Sinai, in the wilderness of Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Right there, there's something different about this covenant. We haven't read this in either of the other two covenants. It's two words. The first is two letters. Starts with an I, ends with an F. If, and it's followed by a then. If you will do this, then I will do this. In math, in logic, that is called a what? A conditional statement. The one must follow the other. 
I remember, remember the, uh, remember theorems? Start reading these things, you come into algebra, junior high math, and they say, you know, if A equals B, and B equals C, then A equals C, and you're like, oh, duh. But for some reason, you gotta be able to spit that thing out and remember its name. I couldn't remember those names of those things. I said, well, that's just plain common sense. Why do I need to remember that for the test? But here, it's an if-then statement. If, then. It's conditional. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? God did not say, if you will circumcise your offspring, then I will fulfill my commitment to you and to your seed. No, he commanded Abraham to do that, but it was not conditioned upon Abraham circumcising his seed. And the seed, and the promise was made not only to Abraham, but to his seed after him, which was Christ. Now, here, the Mosaic Covenant, or the Sinaitic Covenant, or the Covenant of the Law, it's got a few different names. And here it is in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. And then also in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7. Here's Moses, and he's reading what God has said to the people. It says, And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. So the people entered into this covenant with God. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. You're going to read about that in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. There it was. He's talking about this back then. The people entered into this covenant. Who was involved in this covenant? It was God and His people. What were the obligations of this covenant? Well, God said, if you will obey my voice, then what? Verse 6 of Exodus 19. Ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And then through the next, through the rest of 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, up to where he, they ratify that covenant in chapter 24, he gives all these laws and all these principles that they are to live by. And he says, if you will do this, then I will bless you. Now, Again, this is not an unconditional covenant. This is a conditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. It was conditioned upon the people obeying. And this is the old covenant of which he speaks in chapter 8 of Hebrews when he says, for finding fault with them. He says, for that first commandment had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second. 
In verse 9, he says, not, he's going to make a new covenant, but not according to the commandment which he made with their fathers when he took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. What happened with the Mosaic covenant? Israel broke their side. They did not fulfill their obligations. The deal is off. Okay? And it says, I regarded them not. He cast them out of his sight. They were divided up. Babylon to Assyria. And here they did not keep the covenant. There's a fault with this covenant. There's another covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 29... Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Note the wording of that verse. It's very interesting. And this is where there is a delineation between dispensationalists and covenant theologians concerning this particular covenant in particular. Again, he says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord God or the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. Where, what were they doing in the land of Moab? This is right before they were to enter into, cross the Jordan River and to come in. This is after, this is the second time, it's after the 40 years of wandering. And Moses is about to die. Moses cannot go over into the land. They're parked there. They're camped. They're getting ready to cross over to Israel. And this is Moses' final testament to these people. And here's what God says for him to tell them. It's this covenant, and it says, Beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now, there is either an expansion of the original covenant. He's either going to expand on it, or it's a new covenant when he says, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Now again, this covenant concerns Israel and her land, the land. This, as I said, this one divides covenant and dispensational theologians. The dispensationalists, they say, well... God has guaranteed the land to Israel. He guarantees the land. Romans chapter 11 talks about this. And he guarantees their repentance. And repentance is involved in this covenant because in chapter, as you go through chapter 29 of Deuteronomy, he talks about the land. It's promised to Israel. And then in chapter 30, he says, listen, if you rebel, you'll be cast out of the land. And indeed, they were. But in chapter 30, or maybe the chapters weren't there. It's just a continuation of what he's been saying. It says, And it shall come to pass, in verse 1 of chapter 30, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, 
thou and thy children with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. So there's a promise given here. Deuteronomy chapter 29 gives the, what's called the Palestinian covenant or the covenant of the land of Palestine, which would belong to the Jews. God's given it to them. And if you will obey, you'll remain in the land. If you don't, you will be scattered. But then he says, but if you will repent, I'll bring you back to the land. If you repent, God will put you back in the land. This covenant is a conditional covenant. If you obey, you'll be established in the land. If you disobey, you'll be cast out of the land. And it happened. But he also says, if you repent, I'll bring you back. Now, again, as I said, dispensationalists believe that, well, God's commitment to give them the land is permanent and irrevocable. And in Romans chapter 11, use that as a passage where it guarantees their repentance. And it talks about where all Israel shall be saved. I'm going to go into Romans 11 and go through all of that right now. But all Israel will be be saved, and that is because of their what? Because of their election. Their election, God has chosen them, and their election is their salvation. God has chosen them, and the land will eventually be theirs. It's their only hope, because God has chosen them. Not based upon their performance. Now, covenant theologians look at this particular uh, promise and they say, well, no, they apostatized, apostatized and God has judged them and they're through. They're done. There's no place for Israel in the future. That's it. And that's where a covenant theologian and dispensationalist, they depart, where they separate ways right there on that very point. Because the dispensationalists believe that, no, God has made this promise, and it is a promise that He has, God has not rejected His people. They're going to be saved, and that's clearly taught in Romans. And so all Israel will be saved. And of course, there's, well, the discussion, well, he's talking about the spiritual issue. You're not talking about the literal seed of Abraham, but you need to make sure that when you look at those passages, you're interpreting them correctly. Like I said, I'm not going to go into all the details there. This isn't a lesson on dispensational theology and covenant theology, but I wanted to point that out. There's one more covenant there. And turn to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is the word of the Lord. And it's given to David. In verses 3 and 4, it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Who's involved in this covenant? It's God. He's making covenant to David. What is the covenant? The covenant is that there is going to be a throne. There will be someone to sit on David's throne forever. 
Verses 28 and 29. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. There he's talking about David's seed Solomon, and that he's going to establish this throne, the throne of David, forever, for eternity, an eternal throne. Note verse 34. Well, note verse 30. If... His children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments. If they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Verse 33, nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail Verse 34, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Now, Who are the participants of this covenant? God, David, and his seed. What are the obligations? God says, I will make your throne an eternal throne. Of course, there the prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, the seed of David, is going to sit upon the throne, and he is going to be the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. Is this a conditional or an unconditional covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. God says, I will not change. I have sworn by my holiness, by my very nature. God would sooner be no God than he would break this covenant, is what he's saying. It is not breakable. And he even says, if his seed does not obey. How many kings of the Davidic line were godly kings? Well, there weren't as many as there were ungodly. I mean, there were more ungodly kings. Did that negate God's covenant? No. And God spells that out here very clearly. The Davidic covenant was an un conditional covenant, and it is a commitment to establish David's throne forever. Which leaves us with one more covenant. What covenant is that? It's the new covenant. And it's first mentioned in Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, this new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, it's quoted in Of course, Hebrews chapter 8. But in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. And then he goes on, and it's the same quote that we read there in Hebrews 8. There's a new covenant. It was spoken of in the Old Testament during the Old Covenant by the mouth of Jeremiah. God gave these words. There is a new covenant coming. What was the need of the new covenant? There was something wrong with the old. 
Now, all these covenants, all of them with the exception of one, every covenant except one was unconditional. There is only one covenant which was conditional. What was that? That was the Mosaic Covenant. Keep that thought in your mind. In each of these covenants, I want you to to note, who initiated the covenant? Who initiates the covenant? It's God. God initiates the covenant. Man has nothing to stand on to demand any obligation from God. It's not man coming before God and saying, all right, I I want to strike a deal with you, and here's what I want you to do, and here's what I'll do. No, that would be blasphemous. Man is in no condition, in no place, has no standing to demand anything of God. And so every single one of these covenants in Scripture is a manifestation of God's grace, of God's grace to humankind. God is extending grace. He is making a covenant with man. Sinful man who deserved nothing but judgment. Ever since Adam broke God's commandment, and some have said, well, there's a covenant there that God made with Adam. Well, it's not stated as such. There is actually a verse in Hosea, in Hosea 6, 7, it says, but they like men, and that's the, that word men is the exact same Hebrew word for Adam. You could say, but they like Adam have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. What did Adam break? Well, God said, do not eat. Of the tree. I've given you everything. You don't eat of this tree. What did Adam do? He disobeyed. And ever since then, all of mankind has been guilty and deserving of judgment. But God, in His grace, has extended mercy, has extended grace to man in these covenants. Wake him up. Put your foot down and look at me. Now, In every covenant, God obligates himself. You notice that? In every one of these covenants, God obligates himself. He says, I will do this. But only one covenant has a condition. It's the Mosaic Covenant. Folks, that's the problem. That's the big problem. Because if I am under the covenant of law, which is conditioned upon my obedience, then I am done. I am hopelessly lost. I need a new covenant. I need God to intervene. And if there is not a new covenant made, we're doomed. The new covenant is absolutely essential. And in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 9, we find these words. 
This new covenant is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not fulfill their responsibilities. They abode not. They did not continue in my covenant. Therefore, I regarded them not. It's been canceled. Hebrews 8, 9 informs us that the only covenant that is obsolete of all those covenants that we looked at, there's only one that's obsolete. And that was the one that was conditioned upon man's behavior. God's covenant with Noah, it's still in force, folks. And we see the rainbow. And God is not going to destroy the earth with a flood. God's commitment, his covenant with Abraham is still in force and to his seed after him. And we have Jesus Christ of the seed of Abraham. God's covenant with David is still in force. Listen, any covenant that has any kind of dependence upon man is doomed. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the old one, not like the one that was dependent upon their obedience because they didn't obey, they couldn't obey. And that covenant is no longer in force. The only covenant in the Old Testament or in the Scripture that is obsolete is the Mosaic Covenant. So when someone says, oh, well, that's, that's the Old Testament, we just use that for reference. No, the old, co- the old covenant, the Old Testament is still there, and the covenants that God made are still in force with the exception of the one that is obsolete. Now, why was it obsolete? Because the Israelites did not meet the commitments. Was there a problem with the law? No. Romans 7, the law is holy, just, and good. But the faultiness of the covenant was not in God's side, but it was in the failure of the participants, the Israelites. So what do we need? We need a new covenant. Just like we need a better priest, and we've looked at that, we need a high priest that lives forever. We need a high priest that can offer a better sacrifice. But we also need a new covenant with God and one that's not dependent upon our performance. Remember the book Hosea? Hosea, prophet of God, commanded to marry this woman who was a prostitute. And what did she do? She was unfaithful to him. She left. And what did Hosea do? He had an unfaithful wife, and what did he do? He went and redeemed her. And it is a picture of what God does with his people, and he buys her back, and he loves her. Hosea, it's an incredible, it's an incredible illustration of what God has done with his unfaithful people. He redeems them. And folks, this new covenant, of which we'll look, we'll look at more in more detail, this new covenant is an unconditional covenant. It replaces the conditional Mosaic covenant. And look what it says. 
Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts or into their minds and on their hearts will I write them. What else? I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. They shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And then look at the, the, the next characterization or the next character of this covenant. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. This covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. And when we come to the end of this description, as I read before in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 18, now where remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. For by one sacrifice, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. One sacrifice once for all. Jesus is our high priest. This is his ministry. He is a minister of the new covenant, which was based upon or established upon better promises. Yes, thank God for the new covenant. We need a new covenant. The new covenant renders us eternally secure because it is an unconditional covenant. It's not a covenant based upon our behavior. Any covenant with two parts where man has to fulfill a part is a covenant that is doomed to failure because man cannot. Man does not. Man is not covenant-keeping. God is the covenant-keeping God. And remember that of all the Old Testament covenants, only one was conditional. Israel broke that covenant, and it is now rendered obsolete, and there is a new covenant conditioned only upon the goodness and grace of God. That's the covenant that renders us eternally secure. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ of course, we're going to look at that. He's going to spell that out for us in greater detail as we go through the end of chapter 8, going on through chapter 9 and half of chapter 10. A new covenant. We need a better priest. We need a better covenant. And both of these are found in Christ. Praise the Lord for this. And let me tell you, as you go through this and you study this, what should your response be? Listen, if, if you go through this and you see these passages and you see what God has done through Christ and it does not cause your heart to, to well up with love and gratitude for what God has done, then there is something seriously wrong with you. This is precious stuff. Sometimes it's hard to understand if we don't take the time to read it and study it and see what God is saying. But what are we? We're drawn to this. We're drawn to this high priest. And you cannot help, 
as you read through this and as you understand it, you cannot help to just want to praise God and sing glory to God for what He has done. And let me finish by saying this. There is not a new covenant because God said, oops, the first one didn't work. Back in Deuteronomy, in chapter 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. Listen, there are going to be some things we don't understand. We can't understand all that God has done. But the Bible tells us, it says, Known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. God planned this whole thing out this way from the beginning. And when you see that, it causes you just to marvel. It's amazing. Look what God has done. Look what God hath wrought. Look what He has done. The new covenant was not a response to a mistake. No, the new covenant was planned from the very beginning. Oh, the wisdom and the knowledge of God and His ways are past our finding out. But what He's explained to us and what we can understand causes us to rejoice in His wisdom and His love and His care for us. I hope that you are a participant in the new covenant. The covenant that's completely dependent upon the character and the promise of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom. And Lord, as we take this, this kind of a brief overview of Scripture, looking at what you have done, and Lord, in your relationship with man, and how you, throughout history, have obligated yourself in grace, Lord, help us to respond rejoicing in your love for us. Lord, we thank you that you have brought about a new covenant through which we find salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all. Lord, I pray that each one here today knows Jesus Christ as their personal high priest. Lord, as the perfect sacrifice which was acceptable to the Father in our place. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for our security. Lord, we thank you that it is based upon your faithfulness and not our performance. And for all of this, we give you the praise and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.